Welcome to Behind the News. My name is Doug Henwood. The usual two guests today, Joseph Darda will talk about the role of the Vietnam veteran in consolidating an aspect of white identity. And Joshua Adams will talk about what's at stake in the critical race theory debate and what the world might look like if the haters got their way. First, veterans. White men are often considered exempt from practicing identity politics. It's the concern of all those other people. We're the norm, they're the exception. But there's a lot of identity politics around the white working-class man, an identity that my first guest argues was crystallized in the 1970s and 80s around the image of the white Vietnam veteran. It was in no small part a reaction to the black and feminist movements of the 1960s, which challenged the status of a demographic that once saw itself as the very embodiment of Americanism. Musicians like Bruce Springsteen and filmmakers like Martin Scorsese did a lot of this ideological work. How and why this happened is the subject of Joseph Darda's new book, How White Men Won the Culture Wars, A History of Veteran America, just out from the University of California Press. Darda is an associate professor of English at Texas Christian University. His previous book is Empire of Defense, Race and the Cultural Politics of Permanent War. About four and a half minutes into the interview, Darda stumbled over the name of the historian Matthew Fry Jacobson, the author of Roots II, White Ethnic Revival in Post-Civil Rights America, a memory lapse for which he apologizes. Joseph Darda. Towards the beginning of the book, you write about Eric Erickson and the origin of the concept of identity as a psychological concept. He was trying to draw some connections between the individualized realm of psychoanalysis and the larger realms of history and society. You could consider him, in some sense, one of the um, the roots of identity politics, as we, how we have come to call it. Um, so, yeah, could you talk about Erickson and how he fits into this story? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Uh, Erickson, Erickson is an interesting figure because um, his 1950 book that he's best known for, Childhood and Society, uh, is, as you say, in many ways, the, the origin of the kind of uh, the politicized notion of identity that uh, is sort of all around us today. Uh, he introduced this concept um, of the ego identity uh, grounded in a uh, cultural identity that uh, what um, was central to sort of the health of one's identity and one's self-perception was the way in which their sense of their individuality fit, fit into a cultural context. And uh, what is often overlooked in, uh, in Erickson's um, story and how he came to write Childhood and Society in 1950 that really established him as perhaps the most uh, famous developmental psychologist of the 20th century uh, was that he first arrived at it by, by working with veterans of World War II uh, at a clinic in San Francisco uh, while he was affiliated with UC Berkeley. And, uh, and what he what he discovered was or what he what he, what he concluded was that these veterans uh, who were suffering from what later we would call uh, PTSD uh, were struggling with was how to reconcile this this gap between their self-perception and how they were perceived by the larger society. So that gap between what Erickson called the ego identity and the cultural identity of the cultural context. And he gave this uh, the name a, an identity crisis, which, of course, we all know that concept now. When later, you know, biographies were written of Eric Erickson, one of them is titled, for example, Identity's Architect. Uh, so he is uh, perceived by many as, as one of the, the sources of this concept of identity. And in the context of the book that I researched and wrote here, it's, it's significant to me that, uh, that identity, um, as it was redefined in the post-World War II context, has its origins in uh, the way we were thinking about uh, white veterans of, of a world war. And around this time, when people on campuses and youth culture generally were reading Erickson and developing what would become identity politics, you know, that was sort of a grounding, one of the grounds uh, for feminism and uh, um, black power and you know, all the, the more familiar forms of identity that uh, have come down to today. But at the same time, there's emerging a sense of white ethnic identity. And I, I've written on, on the, the wasps, so I, you know, I approach this idea with the idea of uh, the ethnics trying to take away some of the, uh, the wasp claim to dominating white identity. But then um, we also saw a bunch of 
neocons emerging too at this time. The Eastern European, mostly Jewish, former leftists uh, who moved right, a lot of it over black militants and feminism. So um, how does the emergence of ethnicity fit into your story? Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, ethnicity is, is a really, is a, is a complicated concept um, and, and one that, that has its origins, you know, earlier in the 20th century um, as a way to try to debunk uh, the eugenics movement and uh, the, third, the rise of the Third Reich. Part of it was built around this this concept that uh, that uh, Jewish people constituted an, an ethnic group and not a racial group, and so this was a kind of argument that was used against fascist regimes arising in the 30s. Uh, but it takes a very different form in uh, in the wake of the civil rights era during the civil rights era, which is that. One of the famous moments uh, that I think we can look at in the, in the post-civil rights era is the airing of Roots in 1977, one of the you know, biggest moments in television history. And I think what's really significant about, about Roots is that it was, it was interesting not just simply to, uh, to Black audiences or to audiences of color, uh, but to many white people as well, and really kicked off what is sometimes described as the white ethnic revival, um, in which many... Uh, white people who were generations removed from uh, from Europe begin to identify uh, not as white Americans, but rather as Irish Americans, Italian Americans, uh, Czech Americans. Um, it's at this time that we uh, we begin to restore Ellis Island, and uh, and the uh, the historian um, the, uh, the historian um, Jacobson is uh, it uh, sort of has this concept that that whiteness sort of moved at this point from Plymouth Rock whiteness to Ellis Island. Uh, whiteness, this idea that the new center of sort of white identity was about this, the immigrant saga and not so much uh, about uh, the Mayflower or about the early settlers in New England. Um, and, and so I think that, that what um, is really interesting is that, that the effect of the white ethnic revival, which, as you, as you point out, Doug, was uh, something that, made, that, that emerged from the neocon movement or in parallel to the neocon movement, uh, many former liberals who drifted rightward um, in response in part to the black power era, that this was uh, a way in some ways of fragmenting a kind of white racial movement. Um, so, you know, you're looking at, a, you know, this sort of fragmentary group of white minorities of self-identified white minorities and I trace in this book the way that the white ethnic revival, which was this kind of fragmented uh, white cultural movement, reunified around the figure of the veteran. And you can see this in a lot of different places, but I think uh, the one that probably your listeners will be most familiar with is the career of Sylvester Stallone, um, who was uh, kind of the ultimate icon of the white ethnic revival. He made his career with the Rocky film, the first Rocky film in 1976, um, as, uh, you know, this down-on-his-luck Italian-American boxer. And by 1982, he had sort of recalibrated and rebranded himself uh, as, uh, you know, a downtrodden Vietnam veteran, as, uh, as Rambo. Um, and so, so part of the story that I'm telling in this book is the way that the white ethnic revival uh, gradually fragmented this notion of white identity and that, that those fragmented pieces of white identity ultimately came back together again under the banner of veteran America. Yeah. Now, how exactly did that all happen? How did this white guy, an ethnic guy especially, become such a symbol? Certainly there were a lot of black people, Latin people who fought in, uh, in Vietnam. Why did this particular kind of white guy become the symbol of, of, of the veteran and what ideological work did that do? Yeah, yeah, and this is and this is really important and a thing to clarify. I think there, you know, when you write a book, uh, there's always the the risk of misperceptions based on the fact that most people don't read the book. They maybe read a review or they see a thing or two about it on Twitter, and and you know, I think that it'd be easy enough to see the provocative title of this book and say, oh, you know, this guy's arguing that uh, all veterans are white, which of course is not uh, not at all what I'm arguing, uh, but rather I'm looking at the way in which um, this. Largely working class, multiracial group of people who fought on the U.S. side in uh, the Vietnam War, um, how that was sort of ironed out in such a way that when we look at the films that were made about the Vietnam War, the, the most popular novels and memoirs that were written, uh, again and again, we can see that the Vietnam veteran is raced white and gendered male. Um, and very frequently uh, is often a, a middle class or upper middle class cultural producer like someone like Oliver Stone. And I think what is really central about the way that the ideological work that was done in sort of this revisionist history of the Vietnam War 
is that I think the civil rights movement really challenged white identity. Up to that point, there was this sense that white men still had, which was that there was something vaguely universal about their experiences. And uh, suddenly they were put in the position of being described as uh, having this narrower set of experiences, right? They were uh, what they could say, who they were was uh, was circumscribed by their by their race, by their gender, by their uh, by their sexual identity. Um, and I think the Vietnam War provided a kind of answer in some ways. Uh, it gave and, and in much the same way that uh, the white ethnic revival did. Um, who are we if not the man? Right? No, no one really wants to sort of self identify as. Uh, as a white guy or um, or to really have to address their race at all. And I think that the Vietnam War began to serve as a as a as an instrument for rethinking what it meant to be white in the United States. Um, and so rather than using the term white, we maybe could talk about Irish or Italian or veteran. Yeah. And of course, veteran would unify some of those categories into into, into a common classification. But there was also the sense that uh, the Vietnam veteran was widely disparaged by the cultural elite, right? How, how did that, that 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 sense of disparagement fit in? Yeah, and that's and that's central to it. I think that um, you know central to the way that um, the way that that veteran the sort of the veteran emerges as a as a cultural figure from the the mid nineteen seventies, especially into the nineteen eighties. Central to that to that narrative was. Uh, a sense of having been abandoned by by the government, um, of, of having been left to fend for oneself in a way that was not the case for previous generations, for perhaps their uh, their fathers who fought in World War II, and uh, and that took slightly different forms um, among members of the left and members of the right. Uh, generally, on on the left, or at least among liberals, if not on the left. Um, this was understood through the prism of class. Uh, there was a, a broad recognition that uh, that the Vietnam War had been fought by a largely working class armed forces, which is which is entirely true, and that there's a need to sort of recognize the way in which um, these working class young people really carried the bag for the country through the Vietnam War and then didn't really receive their due um, for that service and for that sacrifice. And so we can see this uh, emerging in you know someone like uh, Bruce Springsteen, who really comes from an orientation of sort of working class identity and ultimately arrives in 1984 with Born in the USA, right? A song that really elevates the Vietnam veteran to the status of working class hero. And uh, on the right, this, this tends to emerge more from what we were just talking about, which is the white ethnic revival. So Sylvester Stallone, again, coming from uh, the Rocky, uh, from the Rocky franchise and ultimately sort of merging that franchise with the Rambo films. Though that's really important, I think, to, the, to what you're speaking of, the ideological work of, of the Vietnam War. I think it, for a lot of people, it answered this question of who am I as a white man um, in the post-Vietnam era, if not the man? And, and I think it was precisely that sense of neglect that emerged from uh, the Vietnam War, even if one did not serve. And for the most part, I'm really talking about the ways in which, in this book, the ways in which white elite men who did not, for the most part, serve in the Vietnam War were able to very successfully wield uh, that image of the uh, the wounded warrior, of the downtrodden uh, white vet, uh, among them Bruce Springsteen and Sylvester Stallone. Of course, uh, the U.S. lost the Vietnam War, which is not something this country was used to at the time. There was also resentment over that that had to be dealt with. So this you know this veteran who seems sees himself disparaged by feminism by the Black Power movement also feels betrayed by his government, which wouldn't let him win. What's that line from Rambo? Is it do we get to win this time? Um, mm -hmm. Yeah. How how does that 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 sense of defeat uh, fit into this story? Yeah, absolutely. And, and I think that, that that sense of defeat is central to the, the story that was told by liberals and by conservatives. So that in, in many senses, um, what I'm suggesting here is that energies that might have been poured elsewhere into, for example, uh, a class struggle uh, on the on the left uh, uh, were rerouted into a, a racial uh, a racial project. Um, and it was precisely because there was this sense of defeat that emerged in, uh, you know, in the wake of 1973, there's a downturn in the economy. We're obviously going through a huge transitions in terms of the nature of, of work and labor in the United States. And uh, I think that the, the Vietnam War often provided um, a kind of simple explanation for uh, the hardships that were being experienced by especially a lot of white working class men who were the children of, of uh, working class men who found a foothold in the middle class that now seemed out of reach to, to them. 
Um, and so I think that a lot of that, uh, that sense of, in some cases, justified grievance uh, that was felt in the, the mid to late 1970s and into the 1980s that could have been channeled in more progressive directions was ultimately uh, incorporated into and folded into this project of white reunion around uh, commemoration of the Vietnam War. I'm speaking with Joseph Darda, author of How White Men Won the Culture Wars, just out from the University of California Press. You write about several genres of of art, popular art, um, and some are ambitious than popular art. Um, One of the things I was really struck by was the origin of creative writing programs in educating veterans, uh, the origins of creative writing in the veterans' experience. Uh, How that come to be and how does that figure in? Yeah, yeah. And this is this was, uh, you know, part of the book that, that was fun for me to explore kind of it was a, a fantasy for me to explore because I, you know, I'm a college professor in 2021. And so I'm used to just trying to cling to whatever budget remains available to uh, to my English department. Uh, but uh, this story goes back to the mid to late 1940s uh, in the wake of the, the GI Bill. And this is a period of huge growth for American universities, especially public universities. And so programs are being built, uh, departments are being added. And among them is uh, our creative writing programs. There had really only been one creative writing program, the program at the University of Iowa prior to World War II. And so these new creative writing, pro- writing programs were really built on GI Bill money. And for that reason, uh, many of these creative writing programs really catered early on to, uh, to veteran students. Um, and, uh, and in particular, they saw uh, writing as, uh, as a, a form of, of therapy in some ways, that it was, it was useful to write about war, the war experiences that perhaps these men didn't feel comfortable talking about in other contexts, that, uh, that the creative writing classroom, the creative writing workshop could be a space for exploring those experiences. Uh, but as, as many people know, and as the political scientist Ira Katz-Nelson documents best in his book, When Affirmative Action Was White, uh, the GI Bill benefits were not equally distributed. They uh, disproportionately benefited white, uh, white men. Um, and so those early uh, creative writing classrooms were dominated almost entirely by white men who were all trying to write kind of in the vein of Ernest Hemingway, whose fame was at you know, its heights then. Um, and and I, I, I argue that really this had a profound uh, effect on the future shape of the creative writing uh, program in the United States and therefore uh, American literature itself, that we built uh, the primary educational apparatus for training uh, our authors of the future around uh, the needs of white veterans. Um, and so Whereas we might think of the veteran story as a particular kind of story that maybe gets told in uh, in a creative writing workshop, I argue that the creative writing story, the creative writing workshop story and the veteran story were one and the same from the very beginning. And so even though I think today there is often a lot of complaint that creative writing programs are overly invested in uh, stories that are describing experiences that come from uh, the the racial or gender or sexual margins uh, that in fact uh, central to this uh, to this project from the very beginning was uh, was was not at, at those experiences at all but very much about white male identity as it related to war and that's the kind of identity politics that doesn't attract uh, the criticism of the people who normally criticize identity politics. Yeah, it flies. It sort of flies by unseen for the most part because we don't we don't tend to associate uh, what, we might, what we might call identity politics with uh, with white men. And now back to the uh, the ethnicity story. Um, the seventies were when Hollywood discovered ethnicity. Uh, we had directors like uh, Scorsese, for example. So he had his gangsters, his New York gangsters, but he also had Travis Bickle, the veteran taxi driver. What's the importance of veteran status to the Bickle story? Yeah, yeah, this is this is uh, this is something that really fascinated me as I begin to to sort of dig deeper into this story, uh, which is that you know the the new Hollywood era, which we often think of as sort of kicking off in in 1968 or so, you know, amid the Vietnam War, uh, it you know it found a lot of its early its early energy, as you point out, uh, in stories about uh, white ethnic minorities and especially about uh, sagas of. Uh, European immigration to the United States. Um, and uh, Martin Scorsese is a great example of this. Uh, he often describes himself as being from, uh, you know, Italian America, that, uh, that you know, his stories were stories of white ethnic stories that had not been told before, at least not in a big budget uh, form in by Hollywood. And, and that was really how he began his career with films like Mean Streets, uh, which is probably the first film where he had some commercial success. 
Um, and subsequently, he turned to, uh, like many of the, the sort of new young New Hollywood directors did, uh, from the story of the white ethnic to the story of the downtrodden white vet. So uh, Taxi Driver in 1976 is, you know, a break, another breakout film for Martin Scorsese. And the protagonist, uh, Travis Bickle, is a troubled veteran. Early on in the film, um, it is suggested that perhaps he is Jewish, but that uh, ethnic identity is kind of left unspecified. He is asked when he's interviewing for a position uh, as a taxi driver whether he uh, will drive on, on Jewish holidays, uh, suggesting that perhaps the name Bickle perhaps uh, is, a, is a Jewish name. Um, that's left unidentified. And from there on out, we understand his, you know, the, the foundation of his identity and his, and, his, and his trouble is not being an ethnic identity, but rather a veteran identity. And if we look at other major filmmakers of this era, we see many of them making the same transition from uh, films about white ethnics to films about uh, Vietnam veterans. And often they're deploying many of the same, uh, the, the same tropes, the same narrative moves to tell stories about veterans as they once did about uh, white ethnics. So we could also talk about Francis Ford Coppola, who, of course, you know, has this huge successes with the Godfather films. And then, you know, he moves on to make Apocalypse Now. Um, and this, this sort of happens again and again. Of course, uh, Michael Cimino's The Deer Hunter kind of is the, the perfect blending of those two things. Uh, a, uh, you know, Russian-American community that gets mired in, uh, that gets mired in the Vietnam War. And, and so I, 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 I see sort of the, this, this, um, kind of gradual transition among the new Hollywood filmmakers of this era, moving away from stories about white ethnics into stories about Vietnam veterans, but really carrying a lot of the tropes and ideas of the white ethnic revival forward and into uh, their representations of Vietnam veterans. As with many um, popular cultural products, um, the politics can be ambiguous so that people on the left and people on the right can see what they want to in them. Springsteen, you know, who is uh, born in the USA, sounds superficially like a patriotic anthem, and Ronald Reagan tried to appropriate it as one, um, is also a critique of uh, what happened um, to the veterans when they came home and found the factory shuttered and no uh, help available for their shattered minds and bodies. What about the political valence of this stuff? I mean, it can be ambiguous and uh, be appropriated by almost anybody in the spectrum. Yeah, that's absolutely right, and, and I think it. I think that part of the the usefulness of that that image um, is precisely its its flexibility, um, and it's it's for that reason that uh, both Reagan and Mondale would want to claim. Bruce Springsteen as a kind of character witness uh, in a 1984 political uh, or presidential campaign. Um, and, uh, and you're precisely right. I think especially with popular music is a great example of this. Whereas people who hear in, in Springsteen a complaint about the way that the, the working class has been left behind in uh, you know, the emerging sort of post-industrial economy, uh, they're often listening to, uh, to the verses. Um, whereas, uh, you know, Reagan is hearing the, uh, the anthemic uh, chorus, right? That just simply the, the appeal to being born in the USA as this kind of, you know, birthright, this pride, this patriotism. And I think that that's part of the reason that in this book, I really pair together Sylvester Stallone and Bruce Springsteen. I grew up in a Springsteen house. I really love Bruce Springsteen. Um, and, uh, and I've always understood him to be, you know, of, if not of the left, a, a liberal, identified, of course, most strongly today with the Obama administration, Sylvester Stallone, strongly identified with the Reagan administration. And I think what is interesting is that, that I think that in, in, a, in a period in which we're beginning to see the sort of hyper-partisanship that we live with now emerging, uh, you could have people who could, uh, you know, be attending a matinee viewing of uh, Rainbow Two in the daytime and then, and then going to a Bruce show at night. Um, and I think it does have to do with that sort of malleability. You know, what is the story that you want to take away from a, from a Springsteen song or from a Rainbow film? Towards the end, you write some about Donald Trump um, and his Make America Great Again slogan. Part of what he is looking at, the lost period of innocence, I guess, um, would be, what, 1955, 1960, uh, before the cultural rebellions, before the loss in Vietnam. Um, how does that, that white veteran um, figure into uh, Trump's um, psychological bill of goods? Yeah, and that's and that's a that's a really important important question. You know, I left Trump till the last few pages because I don't want him to take up all the oxygen in the book. But but certainly, I think he his his successful presidential run in 2016, I think, brought a lot of what I'm talking about in this uh, in this book to the surface. And 
Um, if I can just cite, uh, you know, one of many moments I could cite in his presidential run, uh, you and your listeners may recall uh, a moment early on in his campaign when he criticized John McCain uh, at a conservative forum in Ames, Iowa. He said, you know, John McCain is not, uh, from his perspective, a war hero uh, because he was captured. And when he was invited to retract this statement, apologize to John McCain, he said, uh, no way uh, that John McCain is, you know, is no uh, is no advocate for veterans. He's not done right by veterans. I, Donald Trump, am the voice of uh, the best voice of veterans. And this was a moment when political commentators on the right and the left thought that his short-lived political career was was over, that he touched the third rail. There was no coming back from this. And I remember hearing him say that and, and thinking, um, that I wasn't surprised, that I wasn't shocked by it, but I also couldn't have told you why that was. I couldn't have told you why it made perfect sense somehow that Donald Trump would be uh, more successful at wielding uh, the image and the idea of the veteran than John McCain, an actual veteran. And I think that has to do with, with what you alluded to a moment ago, Doug, which is that the Vietnam War in political discourse over the course of the late 20th century became a kind of shorthand for describing the changes brought about not by the war itself, but by uh, the, uh, the civil rights movements, uh, the black power movement, the feminist movement, the anti-war movement. And so, uh, so I think the, the Vietnam veteran and, and veterans ever since have sort of often against their will been turned into icons of a kind of anti-civil rights, anti-feminist, anti-anti-war uh, grievance uh, that I think Trump uh, really neatly captured in his 2016 presidential run in the way that he branded himself as a kind of candidate of the real America, which he also often described as veteran America. It's funny, just uh, and to close, um, we saw an instance the other day, just the other day, in that exchange between uh, Matt Gates and uh, Mark Milley, the chair of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, over critical race theory. And Milley the nation's top uniformed uh, officer, defending the importance of studying race and racism in American history, of reading things you don't agree with, and Matt Gates, and then, you know, the Fox echo chamber, um, expressing outrage over the fact that a military person should talk about race at all. I mean, did, having written this book, did you have any thoughts watching that exchange? I did. Yeah. I mean, I, mean, I think part of it is that in, in many ways, as the number of people in the United States um, who, who serve or have uh, direct uh, relations to people who do serve, um, I think that that has often allowed politicians like Gates to um, sort of manipulate uh, the veteran as they see as they see fit to sort of use that image to their own political ends. Uh, veterans are really politically unassailable in U.S. political life, um, and for that reason, very powerful. And so, I think there was a lot of umbrage taken to this to this perspective being advanced by a military man, because there is this expectation that. Uh, the military has been uh, a reliable, uh, you know, a reliable instrument of kind of batting back anti-racist uh, positions, or even in this case, just simply advocating for uh, a kind of, you know, openness to uh, discussions about uh, white supremacy in U.S. history. Um, and so, I think that was part of the. I think that was part of the reason that, you know, especially the the Fox News. Um, the Fox News contingent took this so seriously because uh, they've, I think, grown accustomed to being able to use the image of the veteran in the way that they see fit, just because that is a very small group of Americans now. And I, and I think that it's, it's increasingly a conservative group, you know, in the post-draft era. And of course, the veteran is, as you point out, largely constructed as white, even though not in fact. Um, veterans come in all colors. Precisely. Yeah. And, and that's and that's another sort of thing that I that worried me about this book and writing it, you know, is that, you know, this is a it's a multiracial working class uh, armed forces that serve in Vietnam and and ever since, um, you know, there are, you know, other historians have described this as the, the military safety net. Right. That, uh, that I think we all recognize that uh, for many working class kids uh, who want to pursue, uh, you know, college education. Uh, sometimes the military, whether they're invested in whatever mission it's currently undertaking or not, uh, see that as one of the only routes to uh, to, to education and to, uh, you know, an, an ever more elusive uh, middle class income. It's an important point to sort of keep in mind who is actually serving um, and to what extent there is this kind of disconnect between the cultural image of the veteran who is almost uniformly uh, you know, again, raced, uh, raced white, gendered male, and the people who are actually serving in U.S. wars. I often, in promoting this book, have been asked about uh, Spike Lee's 
uh, Defy Bloods, his 2020 film about, um, about Black veterans um, of the Vietnam War returning to Southeast Asia. And I have other qualms with that film, but uh, you know, people will often cite as, well, doesn't this disprove the point that you're making? And, and I think it, it doesn't at all, because you know, why is it it took 50 years uh, to make that movie? <laughs> you know, I think that's the, real, that's the real striking thing, is that it took us 50 years before we had a, a Vietnam War film that, uh, that really centers the stories of, of Black vets. It's only one. And it's only one, exactly. Yeah. All right, well, thank you. That was Joseph Darda, Associate Professor of English at TCU and author of How White Men Won the Culture Wars, just out from the University of California Press. You're listening to Behind the News on Jacobin Radio. My name is Doug Henwood, back after a musical break. was some of, yes, Bruce Springsteen's Born in the USA. I struggled with its obviousness as break music after the Darda segment, but sometimes you just have to go with the obvious. Next, Critical Race Studies, which has a lot of people with no clue about what it is up in arms. What's at stake in the fight? And what would the world look like if conservatives got their way and it were banned? However, that would work. Presumably, students would be urged to tattle on their teachers, which doesn't sound like an appealing prospect. Here with more is Joshua Adams. He's got an article on these issues in the Nation Magazine's website. Adams is a staff writer at Color Lines and a former assistant professor of media and communications at Salem State. Joshua Adams. This morning, uh, the Texas Public Policy Foundation, one of these right-wing think tanks around the country, uh, put out a, uh, a very helpful fact sheet here. How, how to identify critical race theory in the classroom. And they found some uh, telltale phrases such as microaggressions, anti-racism, social justice, identity, normative, social constructs, Black Lives Matter. Obviously, we're talking a lot about a lot more here when we talk about critical race theory than we are about a fairly sophisticated but localized um, theory in legal studies. So what exactly is this all about? What is this fight all about? It's really not about um, critical race theory as it's, uh, as it's evolved over the years. To kind of oversimplify it, this is the conservative front in a culture war, particularly as it pertains to uh, anti-progressive uh, ideas and policies. Critical race theory, when you actually think about the more technical definition, um, is actually not very controversial. Um, it's a study of how law and law spanning over time, so like from slavery to Jim Crow, um, in between um, Reconstruction, how law has been the, uh, in some cases, the infrastructure or at least the conduit for racial inequality. This isn't controversial by any means. I mean, any average person walking the street knows that there used to be, for example, black fountains and white fountains, black restrooms, white restrooms, restaurants, such as so forth, maybe a little bit tad more sophisticated, but still quotidian in terms of the knowledge of it. People know that we, you know, there used to be like thoroughly legally segregated neighborhoods. So critical race theory is just tracing to the extent that those laws no longer exist, whether their effects have been and to the extent that things like this do exist or are more uh, race neutral, what is happening. And so going back to you bringing up the Texas uh, Public Policy Foundation, 
part of this is a fight to define the word in any way uh, that they want to in terms of to drive up the negative connotation to it. Um, and so it's become a kind of empty signifier where it means anything that they want it to mean. It doesn't have a technical definition. It just means whatever they want it to mean. And particularly they want to make it negative. And so just giving you an example from the list, one of the words they put is colonialism. Colonialism is just a fact of history that's not, there's not necessarily an ideological lens that you're teaching through. It just is a simple fact that European countries colonize what would later become the United States. And so essentially, even if to kind of trace and use conservative logic, if you were to teach in class this historical fact, you would be teaching critical race theory. If you bring up the word colonialism, what it does, if you cover it in anything beyond the most superficial way, it makes white people look bad. And that makes people like the Texas Public Policy Foundation very uncomfortable. They don't want anything that makes white people look bad, either in the past or the present. Yeah. And, and, and again, I, I think that that's the heart of it. Part of it, too, is there's a contestation in terms of like, you know, again, the kind of culture war. Sometimes I, I even just kind of hate even though I feel like the term culture war is descriptive, I also feel like it could force everything into this binary in terms of ideologies, ideology, excuse me. So it's like, you know, liberals versus conservative type thing. But certain facts are just simply not ideological. Like it just it just is true that, for example, the Civil War was about slavery. But because conservatives have a different interpretation of it, to say that is the liberal thing to say, for example, even though that it, it was actually ideologically neutral. Part of this, too, and kind of speaking to what you were saying, is this idea that history is supposed to have a certain affect, like history is supposed to make you feel good. History is supposed to inculcate a form of uh, patriotism in you. And that's why we see a lot of conservatives say, for example, that they want to combat uh, and again, quote unquote, liberal indoctrination with patriotic education, words have to mean things. And so if indoctrination has a definition, as it has a technical definition that you can look up in a dictionary, such and so forth, then patriotic education would literally be one of the examples. <laughs> I think they think it's true, though. So, you know, like just they're, they're just reciting truth, like, you know, two plus two equals four. But right. one of the tenets of critical race theory is that despite the advent of formal equality, the end of Jim Crow and um, the end of formal discrimination, nonetheless, the effects of racism pervade American society still, despite what the laws say about formal equality before the law. And I suspect that's also what makes them uncomfortable. They don't even want to hear about that. Yeah, and I, and I think part of this too is a kind of fight over the definition of racism. Conservatives, or at least people with you know the kind of conservative sensibility, are more prone to think that racism is uh, an individual thing. It's kind of like an individual evil. It's very localized. It's very contingent. Um, it's things that people do. And they feel like to broaden it out to a systemic or an institutional lens would basically be saying that every single person in the country is uh, racist. And when you look at it that way, it's understandable why you would be scared of these types of ideas to, to the extent that they do, uh, you know, intersect with cr critical race theory. But analogy that I would give is when we think of a social phenomenon, just say like slavery, for example, but like think of it as analogy of like energy energy is neither created nor destroyed. And so when something happens, there are going to be effects. Now, whether or not those effects are, you know, to whatever degree, we can debate that, but it is simply is true that there's going to be effects. And so no one would say that just because the Holocaust was a long time ago, that anti-Semitism isn't a thing. And yet that's the case that people make with institutional uh, racism, that because simply because laws change, that there's just no effects. And so what they're actually saying is slavery and, and anti-Blackness almost has like a metaphysical sense that we don't even understand. It's an energy that was both created and destroyed. It just doesn't make sense. And that's not a reasonable position to make. What it leaves us with is if we can't talk about systemic inequalities, if we can't talk about the legacy of these things, then really we're left with rugged individualism where social systems don't even really matter. We're all just like individuals. And so when I wrote an article about this in Color Lines, how it manifests itself is kids would be going into school and they would 
be learning that even though our country had slavery for hundreds of years, we've had between slavery and let's say the civil rights movements in the 60s and laws passed in the 60s, another hundred years of Jim Crow, Black codes, et cetera, so forth. None of that matters. What really matters is just as soon as the law was passed, all of that stuff ended. And so after that, any social inequality and particularly racial inequality is only as a result of some deficiency in Black people, Black culture. Sometimes people stick to cultural you know, understandings. Obviously, the further you go right, people have a kind of idea that it's genetic. And so when you take out the, uh, these ideas, it really just leaves people with the idea of like, and I'm, I'm being somewhat glib, but Black people suck and maybe they just should stop sucking so much. <laughs> um, pull up your pants. Right, you know, pull up your pants. They're acting as if, you know, this is being taught, this CRT playbook is being taught in high schools across the country. But what actually do high school students learn about things like slavery, Native American history, Manifest Destiny, all that? Do they actually learn anything that uh, would offend the sensibilities of um, these, these right-wingers? Well, I didn't teach high school um, history. I did teach high school English. So I have like some kind of somewhat experience in that setting. And obviously, like all of us have, you know, experience as, as we, you know, when we were students. My inclination, and at least from both my experience and thinking about the research, we don't learn too much about this stuff. One of the things that I saw is the uh, Southern Poverty Law Center did a survey study in 2018, and they found that only 8% of high school seniors could identify slavery as a central cause of the Civil War. Wow, that, that's actually much worse than I would have guessed. Yeah, that's a terrible number. It's astounding. It, you know, when we look at history, virtually, and, and I almost want to say all, I just, I just kind of don't want to say all only because I don't remember off the top of my head, but I believe all of the states um, that seceded specifically mentioned slavery as one of the reasons, or the, if not the reason why they uh, succeeded. That's just such an astounding, you know, statistic. Um, but I think for most of us, and again, I'm somewhat speculating because obviously it manifests itself in different locales differently. You know, people are going to teach differently in Arkansas than they're going to in New York. They're going to teach different in a, a predominantly black school in New York versus a very um, integrated school in New York versus a mostly white school in New York. You know what I mean? So there are variations, but most of us learn a very simplified and truncated version of our history, particularly, especially, um, but particularly, you know, when it comes to like black history, it's whitewash and truncated version of history. And then there's like a jump and then it's like Martin Luther King. Um, and even to the extent that we learn about Martin Luther King, we don't learn about his radical politics. We learn just kind of like one line from one speech about colorblindness. When you make history more about uh, mythology than what actually happened, that actually has effects on people. So an example I would give here is like a lot of uh, conservatives have actually cited Martin Luther King. You know, oh, he would be against critical race theory. This is, goes against everything that he stood for. That just kind of shows that they actually haven't ever read anything that Martin Luther King wrote outside of, again, just one line and one speech. And maybe they didn't even read the line. They just heard the line. Uh, Martin Luther King was definitely a uh, you know, critic of structural racism. He said that, you know, the edifice that produces beggars needs restructuring. He felt that the biggest stumbling block to Negro progress was not the, the Alabama sheriff or the, and I feel like I'm paraphrasing here, but not the Alabama sheriff or the KKK, but the white moderate. So he wasn't as, you know, quote unquote, colorblind, you know, as conservatives wanted to paint him as, at least in contemporary times. Um, again, if you don't know your history, you would know that at the time that Martin Luther King was, you know, alive and conservatives were extremely skeptical of him. They thought he was a communist sympathizer. They called him a race baiter. They called him an outside agitator. He was not popular amongst conservatives. It's one of the reasons why some of the biggest pushback against having a Martin Luther King holiday came from conservatives. It's totally dishonest, in my opinion. But it's in the extent that I'm even trying to extend some good faith. Um, it's ignorant in the connotation of the words. Literally, you don't know what you're talking about. I'm speaking with Joshua Adams, a staff writer for Color Lines. So let's turn to uh, what you do in your article, which is imagine what the world would look like if Ted Cruz and the likes of uh, you know the Texas Public Policy Foundation got their way and what they think of as critical race theory were banned from the schools. What would our world look like if that happened? The article is speculative and to a certain extent it's provocative, but I actually don't think that much would change, ironically. 
partly because, again, if you think about, please don't take this as an exact number, but I did some research on about how about how many elementary and high schools there are in the country. I think combined, there are about 400,000. In my experience as an educator and in my kind of like trying to look at these things as a journalist, honestly would be surprised if critical race theory was being taught in 50 schools. And I really would be surprised uh, out of 400,000. I honestly would be like, oh my God, if it was being taught like formally in 50 schools. By no stretch of the imagination is critical race theory being taught prior to college. Um, most people would never hear that term except for, you know, if it weren't for this moral scare. If conservatives got what they want, the biggest problem that they would run into, like just if we just entered the world tomorrow, no critical race theory, no 1619 project, all the stuff that you kind of, they want to get out of education is gone. They would have one problem and the problem would be black people. You have black students that are sharing the classroom spaces with their children. And one of the kind of central tensions in, you know, American history is the legacy of slavery um, in the sense of our country, you know, was founded on the ideals of freedom and equality at the same time that people were practicing slavery. And so there's a tension that I think that the Black student, the Black body, the Black person, the Black experience, the Black, et cetera, so forth, it, there's a, 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 a direct contradiction that that would bring. And so one of the negative effects that I wholeheartedly think is going to come from this is Black students are going to get the picture that they, they need to shut up. Like they, they shouldn't talk about their experiences. They shouldn't talk about their family history, et cetera, so forth. Because someone in the class, maybe their teacher, maybe their classmate, et cetera, so forth, is going to say, oh, you're saying critical race theory, even though they're saying a fact, even though they're giving their experience, et cetera, so forth, especially as critical race theory is being defined as like anything that conservatives want it to mean, not necessarily whatever its technical definition is. It's funny that the right loves to make fun of progressives or people from marginalized or oppressed groups as big you know, snowflakes who are so sensitive that words are violence, yet it seems like they're quite willing to uh, appropriate that uh, words are violence uh, critique when their feelings are hurt. Definitely. And I mean, it's in kind of the reverse of the conservatives saying, and please excuse me if I, if I get the uh, attribution wrong, I believe it was attributed to Ben Shapiro. I don't remember off the top of my head, but there's a conservative saying that goes around in terms of like, you know, my facts don't care about your feelings. And essentially the critic, this scare over critical race theory is exactly the reverse. It's my feelings don't care about your facts. You need to teach in a way that makes me feel good about myself and, you know, as an individual, but, uh, you know, about the country. Many Americans, particularly white Americans, not only white Americans, to be fair, but particularly those. Um, I think many Americans, when you think about history, like history has blood, sweat and tears. I think a lot of Americans just want to hear the sweat. They want to hear the hard work. They want to hear the progress narrative. But they don't want to really hear about the blood and tears because, you know, when people are thinking about history, they're thinking about their ancestors, they kind of situate that with their own identity. And, you know, no one wants to be, quote unquote, the villain. I feel like that somewhat oversimplifies, you know, historical stuff. Um, a lot of things in history, yeah, things are evil, but a lot of things are also kind of like historically contingent. So, there has to be somewhat of a nuance of it can't just be a talk about historical contingencies and, you know, social factors and such and so forth. But it also can't just be a talk about a battle between good and evil. Teaching history is supposed to educate you so you can move forward and, you know, not repeat the same things or you can for more intelligently. And I think that um, this critical race theory, especially is it people have been saying that it teaches white kids self-hate. I just kind of reject that on its face. Um, I don't think it teaches white kids self-hate. Teaching history as if it's supposed to be a feel-good story, that's what inculcates in them an idea of like, oh, like history needs to make me feel good. And if it doesn't make me feel good, then that means it's you know bad or liberal indoctrination or stuff and so forth. Again, to be somewhat fair without actually conceding what I don't agree with, slave masters were the villains <laughs> in the story for slaves. Um, you know, <laughs> really, I don't think uh, that would be an oversimplification. <laughs> yeah, you know, so um, if we we're going to do the kind of binary of villains and heroes, I don't think it's like 
really far-fetched for my great-grandmother to see the individuals and the institutions limiting her life and being anti-Black to her. It's reasonable for her to think that they're villains. But again, in terms of that's like separate from just the the teaching of history. I don't think that history is necessarily supposed to inculcate any feeling in you per se. It's just more so you're supposed to know what happened so you can understand the current. And then by understanding the current, you can move towards the future. Anything else actually is the hated word of conservatives. Anything else is uh, indoctrination. To that extent, the irony is that as conservatives are lambasting liberal indoctrination, um, at the heart, what they want is conservative indoctrination. I was Joshua Adams, a staff writer for Color Lines, an author of a piece on the critical race theory controversy on the Nation magazine's website. Adams cited the explicit mention of slavery in the southern states' secession documents. Here's some more. All the Confederate states issued declarations of secession. Four of them, Texas, Mississippi, Georgia, and South Carolina, detailed their reasoning behind the move, and slavery was central to each. Mississippi's is the most explicit. It says, Our position is thoroughly identified with the institution of slavery, the greatest material interest of the world. Its labor supplies the product which constitutes by far the largest and most important portions of the commerce of the earth. These products are peculiar to the climate merging on the tropical regions, and by an imperious law of nature, none but the black race can bear exposure to the tropical sun. These products have become necessities of the world, and a blow at slavery is a blow at commerce and civilization. That blow has long been aimed at the institution and was at the point of reaching its consummation. There was no choice left us but submission to the mandates of abolition or a dissolution of the Union, whose principles have been subverted to work out our ruin. That's the end of the quote from the Mississippi Secession document. It goes on like that for another 500 words, almost all of which are about slavery. That's it for me, Doug Henwood. Let's go with this, an ironic commentary on Springsteen by Father John Misty, an avatar of the singer-songwriter Josh Tillman. Till next week, bye. Is this the part where I get all I ever wanted? Who said that? Can I get my money back? Just a little board in the USA Oh, just a little board in the USA Save me white Jesus Board in the USA Oh, they gave me a useless edge Subprime loan Craftsman home Keep my prescriptions filled Now I can't get off But I can kind of deal